South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, and a very good warm morning. Uh, it seems to be oh, just our, our way of life here the past couple of months. You know, the closer we get to September, the closer we get to October, I know we're getting closer to a little bit cooler weather, hopefully some more good rain. Oh, man, it has been one long, hot summer, and I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir telling you about that. And if you have questions about what the drought is doing to your plants or what to do about it or anything else related to gardening, that, of course, is what we're here for. And uh, Jimmy tells me we uh, pretty much have an open board. So if you call now, you'll probably get right on through. You know the number, 210-599-5555. Thought I would start uh, the show this morning since I've got just a minute here before, hopefully before we start taking phone calls sort of finished up yesterday talking a little bit about fire danger and uh, a couple of things you should know i you know living in the country i've made it my mission to learn a whole lot about fire and had the pleasure of doing the citizens fire academy and doing some things with the forest service and uh, fighting a few fires and things like that so just two or three things that you really should know especially if you live out in the hill country one thing that i found very interesting is that typically a substrate where it ever is burning the flames will be about three times as high as whatever it is that's on fire uh the moral of that and i tell you i, I sure follow this around my place but if you keep your grass mowed down and it's probably dry and brown like mine is right now if you keep it mowed down to about two inches if you should have a fire the flames are going to be about six inches high and you have a whole lot better chance of controlling them if you've let things get out of hand if you've got uh grass and weeds out there let's see you've got them 18 20 inches tall that catches on fire the flames may be as much as five or six feet high and as you can imagine uh, that's a much harder fire to fight that's a much harder fire to put out so uh, if you don't keep your grass, especially around your home, your barns, your outbuildings, things like that, if you don't keep it mowed down really low, get out there and do it because that'll give you some protection. That'll make it a whole lot easier. If we have the misfortune of a wildfire, that a uh, whole lot better chance that your buildings will survive. And better still, if you can keep a little bit of bare ground for that uh, four to five feet out from any wooden structure or anything like that, your chances are even that much better of uh, getting through a fire without damage. Second thing is one of the reasons that a lot of homes have burned in big fires like the fire they had up in Bastrop and most recently, well, there have been some others around this part of the state, but it's because of dirty gutters. You need to keep those gutters clean. You need to keep those gutters leaf-free because... Uh, so often the way a fire starts what are called fire brands or embers that are blowing through the air and by the way with that possum kingdom fire that was uh, a very few years back they found that the fire brands blew all the way across the lake something like a mile across the lake still flaming and if one of those lands in your gutters which is highly likely sets a bunch of leaves or twigs or whatever else on fire the fire will probably spread spread to your roof and that's the reason many homes are lost so keep those gutters clean you ought to keep them all clean all the time but uh especially now during you know when we have such a heightened risk of wildfire really especially important to keep those gutters clean anyway those are just two of the tips that uh i thought i would pass along to all my friends living out in the country and uh 
I tell you what, uh, guys, it's it's really makes you realize how important our volunteer fire departments are. Up in Kendall County, we have one full-time fire department, and I believe either five or six volunteer fire departments. But the reason that we haven't had major fires, you know, in the past several years, knock on wood, is because those guys and gals have done such a great job. When a grass fire has sprung up, they knock it down. They get it out before it has a chance to turn into a real conflagration. So next time they have a barbecue or a fish fryer or whatever else, get out and support them. Support them with your dollars because uh, that equipment's not cheap. Uh, you don't want to know how much a new fire truck costs or a new brush truck, but uh, those are the guys and gals that are keeping us safe, and, uh, you know, let's hope that uh, we don't have to call upon their services, but I can tell you that it's, it's dry and dangerous out there right now. So I know that's not strictly related to gardening, but uh, I live in the country. I know a lot of you guys live in the country, and I certainly think it's information worth sharing. Huh? Jimmy, do we have anybody on uh, lines at this point? You've got four callers. We'll start got with David. Got four callers. Looks like David and Mark and Billy and Carol. So let's just get started with the fun stuff. Good morning, David. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, I, sir. I, I called you a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, doing some excavating in the yard for water right. catchment. And I, right. and I was going to use that dirt for a raised bed. And after I looked at it, I thought, man, I just need to throw this stuff away. And you said, no, <laughs> amend it. Bob, I got to tell you something. We we purchased that which you recommended, and and worked it in. I mean, it's like now digging in a bag of the finest soil I've ever seen. <laughs> it it's uh, you know you just give what you use what Mother Nature gives you to work with, but you can certainly help Mother Nature out. She could do that, but it might take her a thousand years. Dave can do it in an afternoon, so uh, I'm glad to hear it's working out for you. I made the bed out of out of treks and uh-huh. um, five pieces high, and, and I understand I could probably go to HEB for the next 25 years and purchase whatever I needed for the cost of that trek. But you know, <laughs> I need you to tell me that I'm going to enjoy, you know, eating fresh food. You know, um, well, but- fresh. Pesticide-free food and uh, and and stuff that's that's grown and ripened on your plants. There, there is a big difference, as you well know. So proud of you. Yes. Sounds like you're doing well. And I, I I I used rebar to attach the the tracks, and then across the very bottom one, I, I put a, a a wire. Just let mm-hmm. me just give this a little support. And then after we had it in uh, twenty inches high, we watered it. The next morning. It it, it, it it looked like a crescent moon. And so I got I had the privilege of digging it all out. Digging it oh, all wow. out. Yep. Dumping it out. But that's when I discovered how incredible that, that blend was. But now I, I <clears throat> reinforced that with some plumber strap several layers up, so I think it it's gonna it's gonna do fine. But that, that combination of stuff was incredible. Is there a way to purchase <clears throat> some of that stuff maybe in, a, in, in in bigger quantities so that I can spread it in some really needy areas in my lawn, like the, the I think it was the lava sand in particular. Yeah. I have not found a bulk source on that. Uh, used to be Stone and Soil Depot. Now they call themselves Site One. I've been after them to start offering it in bulk uh, they're not a local company anymore. That was the thing when Jeff Knight owned and was running the place. Uh, you know, they, they made their decisions here. Now their decisions are made over in Georgia. But 
Uh, certainly, they've heard from me about things that I know they would sell if they would put them on the ground. So keep your fingers crossed. I'm hopeful, but I'll believe it when I see it. Okay. My last question and concern is I have to talk to you about my ginkgo. Um, uh I had the, the other David was at my house in the spring and, 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 and uh, dealt with circling roots. And that's when we were getting some rain. So watering it wasn't an issue. Of, and I didn't have it mulched well. And just recently I, <clears throat> I had some compost left over, which ended up in the raised bed. But I've, I've mulched that with compost three two and a half, three and a half inches of it. And I watered the ginkgo thoroughly and, you know, like a week or seven, eight, nine days ago. And I can still feel it's moist under that. But this morning, and I've been watching it for some days, the the leaves look, um, uh, they look more wilted than they ever have. I mean, and I know we're getting heat and they used to recover over the evening, but this morning early, the wind was there. So it's a really bad combination. Do you think the compost being used as a mulch is kind of giving me a false positive? I mean, is, is could that be demonstrating some cool, moisty soil that's not really accurate as far as what the tree needs? In other words, should I be watering this thing more often? All right, back to gardening, we hope. <laughs> Electronics are great until they don't work. And uh, I just have to say a big thank you to uh, our engineers and our operations manager who showed me a lot about how all this system works. And uh, when we have a problem like we just had, you frequently get it solving back up. Uh, Dave, we were in the middle. We had talked about um, lava sand, and we would moved on to your ginkgo when things cut out. And you mentioned compost and... Then that's when everything hicked up. So let's let's start from there. Okay, I'm I've mulched it with compost, and I'm wondering. And, and and so when I go knuckles deep into the soil, it's still moist, mm-hmm. not not wet, but moist. And so I'm not inclined to water. And, right. But this morning, this morning the leaves. I mean, they look bedraggled like at six o'clock last evening usually they've recovered by now and okay two years ago i killed a ginkgo by overwatering it so i'm a little right. paranoid but I, right um i i know the the heat and then the wind that comes up overnight it, it's it's a double whammy and, and by the way i think i got cut off a couple times or at least one time before so you're going to have to come up with another game plan if you want to get rid of me <laughs> no it's believe me i enjoy talking to you remember that it's not water that hurts it's when the water drives so much of the moisture or when the water drives so much of the oxygen out of the soil the thing that hurts plants is the lack of oxygen it's not the fault of the water so right uh but you can no matter what your soil is doing moisture wise you can take that hose and you can spray up and down the trunk and limbs and leaves of your ginkgo or any other plant and with very few exceptions the plants especially young plants will absorb a lot of moisture directly through the bark and many times that will get a tree through if something is bothering its roots all of a sudden you've given it's like giving it an IV an IV because uh, the stomach stopped working for a while or something like that so uh, anytime things are looking droopy or bad or whatever, even though you don't want to saturate the soil, 
uh, go ahead and spray you know the the part of the plant that's above the ground next time it needs water um, I would definitely add some super thrive some garret juice couple of things like that uh, to help whatever's bothering those roots uh, help the tree get past that and get some roots reestablished uh, remember that of true vascular plants the ginkgo is probably the oldest tree on earth so it has been through a lot and it's their they're tough cookies so there's a very strong chance it'll hang in there for you and come back out yeah i i i had david come out here in the spring and 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 the leaves bob you can count the leaves on this ginkgo that's uh-huh. how few there are and and they came out a month earlier than last year and deep, deep green, and they stayed that way until maybe a month ago. And and, and David explained it. The tree is probably in survival mode, knows what yeah. it can take, and he, he discouraged fertilizing it. Uh, but but you know that's when I added azomite to it. Yeah. Uh, so um, uh, I, I I can spray it, but there's just not a whole lot there for it to. Uh, well, but like I say, the soft bark, it's going to absorb a lot. It's going to absorb more through the bark than it does through the leaves. The bark is much okay. more porous, and um, so you will help it even if it has no leaves at all on it. And I've seen trees that were totally leafless, look totally dead, come back and had numerous callers tell me they had things come back even though they had given up on them. So uh, okay. you can even put okay. a little super, if you have a way to do it, you know, mix up your little hand sprayer and... Uh, uh, put a little bit of your Super Thrive in there and, and spray that along with the moisture on the bark and the leaves that are on there. And uh, I, I know the packaging on that stuff looks like snake oil, but my experience sure. is that it, it, it does just about everything it claims it does. So, well, Dr. Thompson was a uh, uh, was quite an inventor, and it's, uh, uh, it's, it's been a part of my arsenal for lots of years now. So... Um, I, uh, do you think do you think the compost being used as a mulch is a problem? No, I think that's an excellent idea. Just don't put it right against the trunk and do water. You know, when when you put something like compost down, I realize you, again you don't want to saturate the soil any further now, but um, water it when you put it down because there are there's actually some material that serves as fertilizer in the form of ammonia in there. And then you've got a lot of different uh, humic acids, fulvic acids, not to mention microbial life, uh, that are going to benefit the soil and therefore the things growing in the soil. So, no, compost is the best mulch you can put down. It just, uh, um, it's a little pricier than mulch. And uh, I think probably my favorite, very favorite thing to do would be to take some mulch just for the bulk and mix like half and half compost and mulch which is going to create what we call, you know, a living mulch. The fibrous nature of the compo- or the mulch will help hold things in place, and you'll kind of fluff it up, giving it additional insulating qualities by, you know, just increasing the volume of it. And so uh, I, I like, I love compost as a mulch, especially in flower beds, but around trees and shrubs, I like it even better if it's blended with a good mulch to form what we would call a living mulch. Okay, perfect. Very good. Thank you very much, sir. You get out and have a good day, and don't overdo in that heat, and uh, I will look forward to our next visit. And I thank you for the All call, right. sir, and thank you for being patient. Hopefully hopefully things are up and running for the rest of the show, but uh, electronics these days, you never know. Let's move along to Mark. Uh, good morning, Mark. 
Uh, Mark had to go, so we're on to Mark Billy. had to go, so Billy will be up next. I'm glad you're there, Billy. How are you today? <laughs> I am too, Bob. Hey, what does <laughs> your buddy, the meteorologist, say about this El Nino? Ask me about that oh, next man. Tuesday, because I hope to talk to, we've got a district groundwater meeting Monday night, and that's when we frequently get an update from Dave, and so uh, I, I, he's, the man has a big family, let's say, and I don't interrupt him in his time off, but uh, I certainly am hoping for a report from him on Monday evening, and uh, uh, get hold of him on me after, after Monday night, and I'll, I'll let you know what the smartest meteorologist I know is saying. All right. Well, this is about the hottest, windiest I think I can ever remember. And We've got a fall garden, but, man, it is a struggle. Well, and that's why I tell people, you know, give it a little bit of shade and, if possible, keep the wind off. And uh, I haven't planted a thing for fall yet, and I, quite frankly, we're just going to have to wait and see. I, again, people tend to say, ah, oh, you're just getting old, and, you know, you can't take it anymore. Well, let me tell you, I talked to a lot of old young and everybody else and there are just an awful lot of people out there saying that uh that this is the most stressful they've experienced and i feel like the plants are that way too and uh it sure brings to mind what radiant heat is radiant heat and you know they're man-made radiant heaters uh and and what they do is they heat the surface that they hit without necessarily heating the air. And that's what that old sun does. And, uh, boy, uh-huh. you can be outside, you're in the shade, you're very comfortable, and you step out in the sun, and five minutes Root. later, you know, you're just really suffering. And I, 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 quite frankly, and I've spent my life out in the sun and uh, still plan to do so, but uh, it, it's more intense and more uncomfortable than I remember, I'll put it that way. I've been in hotter situations, but uh, the combination of the of the bright sun, the moderate humidity, and the temperature, it's just, it's not only uncomfortable, it's its dangerous if you're not fully hydrated and taking care of yourself. It's, it's dangerous to be out in, and I'm sure Dr. Kirby will be telling us uh, a lot about uh, animal issues that he's seen the past week uh, when we get started after 11. So, yeah, it's, it's not any fun to be working outside in the middle of the day. Okay. Well, I'll call next week and get a weather report. I will look for, I will look forward to talking to you then. I thank you. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Billy, and we'll talk. With, thank you, sir. Okay. Uh, Carol is up next, I believe. Uh, Carol, you there? Hi, Bob. Good morning. Hi, I have a couple of issues. I have a well-established Chinese pistachio tree, okay. and I'm trying to keep the I'm trying to keep the Augustine under the canopy alive by water hand watering every other day. Anyway, at the bottom of the trunk of the tree, some of the bark has started separating, and I can see the next layer of whatever. It's kind of a reddish color, and that's I don't know what's going on with that. What could what could be causing that bark to just fall off or deteriorate like that? How how does the top of the tree look? How does the foliage look? Oh, it's good. Okay. And is, are these patterns more or less vertical? They're sort of straight up and down the sides of the trunk? Yes. They're okay. vertical, but they're about, I just measured one, about. it's about eight inches from the bottom. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, it's not like a ruler vertical, but it's wider at the bottom and narrower at the top. What we see 
and a lot of different trees. Chinese pistachio are one. We see it on pecan trees to some extent. Occasionally we see it on oak trees. Is especially in, in uh, shall we say, stressful weather, that outer layer, which really isn't bark yet. It's still just, it's a green bark, in effect. It's not a woody bark, and it's not very pliable. And the inner part of the tree and many times is growing faster and it's kind of like a snake or a lizard it's simply you know it's shedding its skin it's splitting that outer bark because the core of the tree is growing quickly pecan trees it's still a practice believe it or not that in order to get the trunks to grow more quickly they will take a short bladed knife like a sheetrock knife or something like that and just split up the side of the tree you know several feet up and down on the trunk, they'll split that bark because it allows the central core of the tree to grow and fill out faster. I'm hoping that's what you're looking at. The fact that your foliage looks good and nothing else seems to be bothering the tree, it 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 can be just a normal thing that a fast-growing tree, and pistachio is a moderately fast-growing tree, and sometimes we see that uh, that happen. Now, look at the edges of where the split is. If they look rough and ragged, it may be something else. But if it looks like they're sort of rounding over and smooth, then uh, that's just a fast-growing tree. Okay, I'll check that. And then my other issue is, like I said, I have Augustine under the canopy. And all around that canopy, all around that circle, there are Augustine runners coming out. But the soil is just bare. I don't know what to do with that. Should I sprinkle some compost on top of those runners? Or absolutely, absolutely. Compost or living mulch. You just heard me talking to Dave about mixing compost and mulch together to make an even better product. But uh, no, I don't. Don't pile stuff up against the trunk. But uh, two, three inches of compost and mulch on top of that is going to keep the soil, you know, probably thirty, forty degrees cooler. If you don't make it too thick or too heavy. Uh, the St. Augustine, you know, will come up through it. Now, uh, within the first 18 inches, two feet out around the trunk of the tree, I just assume, you know, not see grass there. I'd rather just see a layer of mulch. But uh, if you want, you can cultivate and nurture the grass that way. But you will definitely improve the soil, which will benefit the St. Augustine all around it and will benefit the tree as well. I, mulching is one of the most important things we do in a hot summer like this, and it helps not only the trees, but it helps uh, the foliage, helps the ground covers, uh, helps everything around them. Okay, but you're not telling me to put mulch on top of those runners because they're, they're trying to survive on bare soil. I would not totally cover them where you don't see them. I would put living mulch on top of them but i wouldn't bury them i would put a quarter to half an inch where you've still got green leaves coming up through the mulch but uh you stop and think that runner uh if it's not totally shaded is being hit by the sun and the temperature on the surface of that thing could be 160 degrees you put half an inch quarter of inch of mulch over the top of that the temperature is going to be more like um, 88 degrees and um you can imagine what's going to make the make the grass feel better so to speak and grow better as well so yeah mulching is very important just don't totally bury all the green leaf tissue okay well i don't have living mulch i have some kind of mulch i don't remember what it is well so would that get, a bag 
get a pot, get a bag of compost and mix it with it. Most of the mulch okay. that is sold, unless it says living mulch, is going to be just basically ground up, hopefully ground up tree trimmings. Unfortunately, some of the cheaper companies may throw in old pallets and everything else in there. But you can take okay. any kind of mulch and make it a lot better. I would, as as a general rule, I figure mix about one part compost to about five or six parts of mulch, and you'll have uh, a better product than either one of those alone would be. Okay, great. I'll do that. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure hearing from you. Get out and have a good day, Carol. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Certainly. Goodbye. All right, let's get a break in here, and uh, then we'll get back to phone calls. Looks like I get to talk to Sam about Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics. So much fun visiting with Sam, having him on our organic roundtable at Festival of Flowers a few weeks ago, and just hope a lot of y'all were out there and got to see what an interesting, capable person he is. He's been doing this for, well, I think, what, 38, 39 years, something like that. Big into organics. Everything Green Grow Organics does is organic. And the man is just has such a broad range of experience from everything from turf rest to ground covers to trees to soil health. And he works mainly as a consultant. When something's going wrong in your landscape or when you just want to be sure you're doing everything correctly, he's the person that can actually come to you, walk through your landscape, help you evaluate things, and give you suggestions on how to make them better. Like I say, he's been doing this for many years. He has, I'm sure, thousands of satisfied customers. We hear from him all the time where they're in the nursery singing his praises. And uh, like I say, some people call him out in sort of a preventive basis just to help them do the right thing. Lots of folks uh, want to talk to him about problems that are already occurring and figure out how to correct them. And that's why it works so many different ways. You can set it up where he'll come out on a you know quarterly basis or monthly basis, whatever you need, or just on an as-needed basis as well. Check out the website, greengroworganics.com. And take a look at the program. If it looks good to you, call and set up a consultation. Be sure that you understand any charges up front. But an awful lot of people owe their beautiful landscapes to help from Green Grow Organics. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on a nice Sunday morning out there. Next two callers are Frank and Glenn. Frank is first. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh, excuse my sore throat. I got a acid reflux in it, but I'm just wondering about the yard and this heat and everything. Should I no, leave it higher and not cut it like I regularly do? The the higher your grass is, the more water it conserves. I know that seems counterintuitive, but uh, taller grass doesn't use as much water as short grass, so you're very perceptive. The best thing you can do is leave it taller. Now, as you might have heard me say at the very beginning of the show, especially if you're out in the country, if your grass is brown and you know would be susceptible to burning, mow it down really low. Uh, for fire protection but uh, if it is green even if it doesn't look like it's real healthy by all means let it grow up taller because it will use less water oh good all right well that's it i sure thank you i appreciate the call and i hope your throat gets better and we'll yeah, talk I, again I got another appointment. very good all right well next in line is glenn good morning glenn good morning sir good morning i have uh, two questions for you. We have on um, one of my properties, 
<coughs> a plant that just showed up out of nowhere. Uh, we've kind of identified it as a moon flower as part of the trumpet uh, family. And it stands about a little over two foot tall, uh, a little over two, two and a half foot wide. Uh, the fruit on it is a, smaller than a golf ball and very, very spiky. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, botanically, it's called a datura, D-A-T-U-R-A. Uh, it's an interesting plant. Some people grow it as an ornamental. Uh, it is quite toxic. You know, don't let your pets or grandkids or kids or anybody else eat that because it is one of the more toxic plants in the landscape. But you have to admit it is an interesting white flower and uh, it's very closely kin to what uh, farmers and ranchers call loco weed, which occasionally comes up. And uh, if cattle eat that, then it uh, gives them very severe mental issues and sometimes kills them. So uh, other than being a toxic plant, it's an interesting thing. And uh, seeds get spread around by birds uh, primarily. But, uh, um, yes, it's it's Datura. Can't say what the species is on it, but... Uh, um, it's an, it's an interesting plant. I'll put it that way. But, uh, unless you just really like it, it's not something I'd cultivate. I was getting ready to say, I mean, this is extremely drought tolerant. It yeah. appeared, uh, during the, what rain we had back in the 1800s. And, uh, <laughs> uh, gee, you don't sound had, that old. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, and the, uh, plant has received no watering whatsoever yeah. and uh, it's doing great i'm surprised right well again it's um it's related to angel trumpet there there are two groups of plants that are commonly called angel trumpets one of them are the brugmansias which have um more of a pendulous drooping flower the other is the daturas which have a more uh, horizontal to even upright flower so uh yeah you're just uh you're looking at an interesting i guess you'd say it's native plant and uh nothing wrong with it except that it is very toxic okay uh should i like i said it's just sitting in the middle of the yard in direct sun uh i really have no use for it but uh i'm are the seeds easy to propagate yes yeah, if, oh, you, wow. if you want to let some seeds, uh, you know, let them get almost fully mature on the plant, um, you can collect them, you can store them dry in the refrigerator, not the freezer, for an extended period of time, or you can plant them, uh, um, you know, just in any potting soil, and obviously they're they're pretty darn hardy. Uh, yeah, a high percentage of them will germinate, and um, you'll have more daturas if you like them. There are other colors of it, too. There are, uh, there are some of them that are grown ornamentally. One of them is almost a purple color. One of them is a purple and white double-flowered form. Um, they're just unusual in different plants. Okay. Uh, second question is, I've got uh, an old bed of multiplying onions. That naturally died out, and they're sitting on the surface of the uh, uh, ground. And I want to kind of store them for later on, uh, but I want to redo the bed. Uh, what can I do with those clumps of onions? Uh, where can I store them? Uh, do I put them like into a shoebox with some sand so they stay dry? Uh, I, 
I, I would just I would just put them, you know, in a in a flat of some sort. Uh, I wouldn't close them up. It'd be nice to have at least a little air circulation around them. I where I have stored things like that, and also after I pick onions when I want to store them for any after they're you know after they've been harvested, I've got some of the old. Uh, Oh, they used to, uh, the crates, they used to deliver soft drinks and even milk in, those hard plastic things that have lots and lots of holes in them. And that's what I, I just put them in there, and you can stack them up several crates deep. Uh, you can probably go to a nursery, and they'll just give you uh, some empty flats that, uh, you know, that we get plants delivered to us in. And they're a hard plastic and open bottom, and uh, once again, I'd... I'd it would be nice to put them in something that was more or less weatherproof. And I've always just store, stored them in the tack room in my barn. You don't want them to get real hot, but you don't want them to get real cold. You don't really want to have them in a windy area. So uh, if you've got uh, you know, a storeroom or something like that that you know, doesn't get just excessively hot, you can keep them in there for a few weeks. Now, I would try to get your soil improved. Uh, you'll want to have them back in the ground by, oh, first of October or so is when folks uh, start planting more of them. So not going to keep them out for a year or anything like that. But if you want to dig them now, keep them bare-rooted for a couple of months, that's not going to be a problem at all. Fantastic. Sir, as always, it's a pleasure talking with you. I hope you have a great day. Well, I hope you do as well. And you don't want to keep them wet after you uh, dig them. You might want to mist over them. You might want to wet them down and then let them dry before you put them into storage. But uh, you should have enough of them to enjoy for yourself and share with your friends as well. So uh, it's good to talk to you, Glenn. You have a great day, and I look forward to our next visit. Um, it looks like time to get a break in here, so I get to talk to you about Medina Agriculture, and you know what a pleasure that is. I look forward to visiting Stuart Frankie this next week, as a matter of fact, and uh, we're just always talking about new and different products, and Medina's been, you know, in business for well over 50 years now, and what I love about their products is they are non-toxic, they work with the soil, they work with the microbes in the soil. In fact, Medina produces a number of microbially base products. Uh, they have a lot of different things they, they sell for agricultural use. And I mean, farmers and ranchers use them over hundreds and hundreds of acres. But I'm sitting here right now looking at uh, a little bottle of their new blend they call Beneficial Microbes. That are It's in a homeowner-sized package, and you can use it in your vegetable garden, your flower beds, just about everything that grows. Benina also makes wonderful fertilizers. Now, their dry fertilizer uh, does not have to be watered in, and I'd very definitely recommend feeding, even in the heat. Your plants need the nutrition, but the nice thing about the growing green is you don't have to rush out to water it. It's not going to create any dehydration or any burning. Uh, they're liquid products. I recommend you water first and then put out the has to grow or the new liquid fish blend. But these things work. Uh, summer, winter, there's never a bad day of year of the year to feed with uh, Medina's uh, fertilizer products. And of course, their soil activator, their Medina Plus, these things work to soften your soil. They'll speed up the activity in your compost pile. Just so many different fine products from Medina. All natural, some of them certified organic, but uh, they're all things that I would approve and recommend. You take a look at their website at medinaag.com you're looking for more or well for a complete list of what they produce and if you're looking for sources just check out any good nursery or garden center that carries natural and organic products the name is medina agriculture 
South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Looks like the next two callers are going to be, uh, looks like it's going to be Marie and Darren. Marie is next in line. Good morning, Marie. Good morning. Good morning. So my neighbor had a cedar eater come in and grind up their cedar. Very good. And can I use that mulch on young trees and plants right now? Eh. It's an absolutely great product. Yes, it's uh, Cedar Eater does a good job. I like the fact that it leaves the material kind of stringy, which means not that it's ever going to rain again, but <laughs> even if you get, you know, kind of washing rains, the mulch tends to stay in place. There there are absolutely no negatives to that. Uh, I know people, you know, say, oh, cedar has something that keeps things from sprouting underneath it. No, it uh, keeps things from sprouting underneath it just because it creates so much shade. But uh, that that is ideal mulch, and best thing about it is it's going to be free. If you have any areas that you want to use a little bit better mulch, get a few bags of a good compost. I happen to like the one by Nature's Creation, and mix some compost about one part compost to about five or six parts of uh, the mulch from the cedar eater, and you will have as good a product as you could buy anywhere. Okay, thank you. And one more question. When you say water once a week until established, like mm-hmm. what is established? One year, two years, three years? That's a great question, and it kind of depends on a plant. Uh, if we were talking bedding plants, it's probably three or four weeks. If we're talking shrubs, it's probably a year or two. If we're talking trees to be really well established, it might be 10 or 15 years. So uh, a lot depends, and, and I realize that's kind of a vague answer, but how quickly the roots grow, how fast the roots grow, and how much they can spread out. And really good soils, um, you know, the roots can obviously grow more widespread and can grow more quickly. And at a poorer soil, the roots are going to grow more slowly. And if you had things in a big pot or, you know, in a bed totally surrounded by concrete, it's going to be slower still. So um, with kind of weather we've been having, you're watering, you're keeping your plants alive. The plants don't have enough energy left over right now to really get very well established. So um, trees, like I say, uh, they're going to be moderately established after a year or two, but to be really well established may take 10 or 15. Okay, thank you. Great questions. Thank you for the call, Marie. You have a good Sunday. Bye. Goodbye. Ah, next in line is Darren. Good morning, Darren. Good morning. Morning, sir. Uh, enjoying the show. Oh, well, thank My you. I appreciate it. It's about transplanting some white oak saplings. We okay. have some family property in Bosque County that we're contemplating putting up for sale. I kind of wanted to maybe try to dig up. We have some huge 400-year-old white oaks on that property. Uh-huh. I was wanting to dig up some of the saplings, but how? if I got a tree that's maybe an inch and a half diameter, five foot, six foot tall, how big, how big of a circle do I need to dig to not damage the roots such that it would... <laughs> well, yeah. If you want to damage your roots, you're going to not damage your roots. You're going to have to, you know, get a root ball twenty feet wide that weighs fifty thousand pounds. But to <laughs> to be able to 
transplant the tree um, successfully, uh, is this something that has to be done now, or do you have a few months to? No, no, uh, no. I'm gonna do it this fall. I'm gonna wait okay. till fall. Okay. Uh, I'm just kind of planning, trying to kind of think of what all I'm gonna plant. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to grow some from the acorns as well, but I also sure. wanted to try to maybe dig up four or five of the saplings. Uh, well, for every you know, replanting my current yard and stuff. For every inch of trunk diameter, figure that you're going to need to have a root ball that has a radius of a foot. If you've got a one-inch uh, tree growing there, you want to go out about a foot all the way around and create a root ball that's that big. If you've got, uh, you know, an inch-and-a-half tree, you're going to go, go out about 18 inches uh, as, you know, to create that root wise. ball. Uh, pretty much so. Now, is the soil where these are growing, are they growing in fairly good soil? Really good soil. Yeah, well, that's outstanding. It, yep. It's black silt, river bottom area yeah. yeah though that's that's great because the better the soil the more roots there will be close to the trunk if you were transplanting a plant a tree off of my ranch and portions of it that have very thin soil i tell you don't even bother trying but if you're transplanting from deeper soil you'll have a very high rate of success now one thing that i would think about doing now is uh take a sharp uh, a long-bladed shovel, my grandfather used to call it a bilduckie or a sharpshooter or something like that, and go, you know, put a piece of flagging on the tree so you know which ones you want to save, and go out a, you know, a foot away from the trunk, and go all the way around the tree and try to put that shovel down like a foot into the ground, then skip about three inches, put it down in again into the ground uh, as deep as you can push it, skip about three inches, and go all the way around the tree or trees doing this. Uh, that way you're not severing all the roots. You're not putting the young tree into shock, but you're cutting a bunch of the roots. You're cutting 50%, 60% of the roots, and those roots that you cut, they're now going to begin to branch and spread out and grow more roots, you know, within that, that foot diameter or foot and a half diameter circle. So if you will do that now, your tree will be much less sensitive to being dug and moved um, come this fall when the weather cools off, he says optimistically. Yeah, yeah. So, and then once I pull them up, would I be better off putting them in like a 30-gallon container for a year or two where I can water and control them better or go ahead and put them directly into the ground? If you're putting them into a place where you can give them some water and some mulching, sooner you plant them, the better. Uh, if you're planning to plant them, put them on property where you're only going to visit once a week, yeah, put them into containers. But if they're going somewhere that you're going to be present to care for them, um, uh, go ahead and, and replant them just as soon as you can. If you want to talk a little bit more, I'll get Jimmy to put you on hold because I have to get out right oh, on I, a second. I, thank okay. you very much. I You're welcome. It. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Back to, back to gardening. We're going to talk to Angie next. Uh, Jimmy tells me we still do have some open lines. You know how busy and tied up he gets later in the show. So you might want to give me a call before you head out to church. 210-599-5555. While I say good morning, Angie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, I have a keeper pear that's been in the ground just, I think, last yeah year and a half. Okay. And it has black tipped leaves. What am I doing wrong? 
Um, the black edges on the leaves are, they're a sign of root damage. If it's just right. on the leaves, it's, it could be, I mean, it may just be a heat issue. This sounds, you know, it's a fairly young tree, so it's not super well established. Right. Um, you, the one thing with pears of all sorts, kefir orient, uh, at least you've got a good variety that you're growing, is we don't do a lot to stimulate them. We don't put much fertilizer on a pear tree. We don't prune pear trees heavily because we don't want to stimulate a lot of new growth because that is what is most susceptible to the fire blight and the other issues that can cause pears problems. So um, I'm not going to tell you, yeah, don't, don't abuse it, but let it get pretty dry between waterings Fertilize it about as third as often as you would anything else in the landscape. And really, the only pruning we do on a pear tree is to take off any sprouts that come out down below the graft point. Um, okay. You know, peaches peaches and plums, man, we have to prune the heck out of those things or thin them, I should say, uh, up to 50 or 60 percent every year. But uh, pear trees are, are really just the opposite. We pretty much leave them to let them grow. Sometimes uh, there are things you can do to shape a tree. I've known people to take like a wooden stake and cut a V-notch in each end and kind of wedge it in between some of the branches when the trees are young to kind of push those branches out, make them a little bit more horizontal because that ends up giving you more fruit. But uh, Mm. peach trees are kind of, I mean, pear trees are kind of like a rebellious teenager. They don't want to be coddled. They don't want you to make life too easy for them. They want to do it on their own. And uh, so I, I suspect you're you're just being too nice to them. That's definitely my problem because I mulch it heavily. I fertilize with the regular trees. So okay, I will throttle back on that. And yeah, that's easy to do. <laughs> um, well, my other question was: I have a Mustang grape and a dewberry intertwined, and I don't know how to trim the dewberry without bothering the grape. Like, do it's kind of confusing to me. Well, well I know the dewberry needs trimming down now, or it's past due. Actually, dewberries, actually, they don't need trimming. You can just oh, let good. them grow together. Blackberries, yes, blackberries yeah. are a whole different story. Blackberries, we want to cut out after the canes have fruited. Uh, we want to cut those things back to the ground level because next year's berry crop is going to come out on the new shoots they put up after all the fruit is gone on the old ones. But dewberries are more of a sort of a perennial thorny vine. And, uh, oh, okay. I thought they were the same as the blackberries. That's why I got confused. Uh, they taste a lot alike. <laughs> right. But they they take, uh, and unfortunately, the fruit is not as big. The fruits will not be as numerous as they will be on a really good blackberry variety. But uh, they are some of the best eating in the world. My grandfather used to make what he called a deep dish dewberry cobbler from things we picked on farm property he owned so i have a great love for dewberries and also a reasonable amount of experience with them yeah so just just let them be don't let the grape get so thick that it's shading them out because uh the more sunlight a dewberry gets and they will grow in the shade but the fruit will be much smaller and won't be the fruits won't be nearly as numerous so uh try to 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 thin the grapes as need be so that your dewberries still get plenty of light but uh uh, don't worry about, you know, tearing your hands and your skin and everything up trying to prune the dewberry. It's just not necessary. Oh, great. And the last thing real quick is my gardenia is um, 
getting a little bit black tipped too in the leaves. Is that too wet or it seems to in dappled shade. It's not in the hot sun. Yeah. Gardenias are tough to grow in South Texas. Uh, they, they yeah, they're just kind of the wimps of the world. Um it's it is more likely from being too dry than from being too wet or from not being watered thoroughly enough. Is it in the ground or is it in a pot? It's in a pot because I put it in the greenhouse during the winter. Yeah, and you probably don't need to do that unless it's going to get down below twenty degrees. So they're oh, okay. They're they're fine. It uh, it's yep. been doing that like every winter for a while. That's why I'm like <laughs> right. No, it's, unless we're going to get a real severe winter, which we've certainly had a couple of. Uh, but just leave it outside. It's it's will take like I say it'll take go down to the low twenties without any damage at all on most gardenia varieties. But um, just be certain that when you water it, you really flood it. There's no such thing as right. too much water at any one time. But and don't let it get too dry. Let it when the soil is dry, like half an inch deep or so, uh, then water it thoroughly again. If you they they do like a more acidic soil. I'm not into putting acid on anything, but um, you know, some liquid humates, uh, things like that are always going to help. Be sure that you're using a good organic fertilizer on them, and just realize that this is not Alabama. This is not Louisiana, so they're not going to look the same as they do over in deep, rich, acid soil, and um Again, yeah, in the spring I had beautiful flowers, and then you know what happened after that. The heat came. So. Well, you can you can put it in the back of your uh, your big car and go to you know go to Alabama for the summer <laughs> or something like that if you wanted to stay beautiful. But uh, that's that's yeah. just kind of gardenias uh, in South Texas. Some varieties are more adaptable to our soils than others. Uh, I happen I to like the one. Beauty. Uh, you yeah, got the I've best got one. Yeah, you, okay. it is not as big as the mystery in some of the others, but it is certainly the best one for this area. And, uh, you're, you're doing okay with it. Uh, they're just simply not okay. real pretty plants. I will tell you one product that I have found they absolutely love, and it's not a fertilizer. Uh, it's a product called Azomite. And, but they oh, love, yeah. yeah, yeah, put, you know, every month or so, put a handful of azomite on the soil around that gardenia, oh, okay. and it will, it will definitely look a lot better. That, that azomite is just one of the more remarkable products that we've discovered over the past few years. In fact, uh, just uh, yesterday I was visiting with the company that produces it and uh, may have a couple of new azomite products coming out. I'll learn more about that this week and let you know, but uh, your, your gardeniers will very definitely love the azomite. Fabulous. I put a handful in. Thanks so much as usual for all your good advice and setting me on the right track. Well, thank you for the call this morning, and you get out and enjoy your Sunday. (laughs) I'm there. Thank you. You're sure sure welcome. Thank you. All right. uh, Let's get a break in here so we don't get behind. Looks like I get to talk to you about Fanix Nursery and Garden Center. I'm going to give you a couple of reasons. In fact, I'll give you three real good reasons, and then there are lots of other good reasons to go see Fanix. But today is the last day of a sale that they've been having. Uh, That sale includes bananas and figs, and they are all 30% off. You know those beautiful, beautiful plumerias they've been getting from Captain Jacks? Well, they're 20% off, but uh, that ends today. So if you want to save money on figs, you want to save money on bananas, you want to save money on plumerias, 
Get yourself over to Phoenix before the day is over. Of course, while you're there, you're going to check out all the wonderful perennials they have, lots of which qualify for the Salt Water Saver rebate coupons. They've got a great selection still of crepe myrtles and uh, got a pretty fair selection of citrus and getting those fall tomatoes and fall bedding plants in. And, of course, remember, they don't just sell plants and gardening things. They've got the Ego Lithium-Ion Battery-Powered Outdoor Equipment. Uh, I was saying yesterday, one of the things that's really nice about that is that it is so quiet and we all want to get our outdoor work done early in the day with the kind of heat we've been having. But you could have been out there at 6 o'clock this Sunday morning with most of that equipment and your neighbors would have never heard you. They carry a complete line of Eco uh, lithium-ion battery-powered equipment. They carry the Traeger pellet grills and all the accessories. It's just fun to visit Fanix. Over 10 acres of nursery over there, sitting on the same spot they've been for about 90 years now. Check out what's going on on their website at Fanic, F-A-N-I-C-K, FanicNursery.com. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Jimmy tells me uh, not quite as many phone calls as usual this morning, uh, so... You've got a question. It'd be a great time to dial the two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. And uh, typically, the later we get in the show, the busier it gets. So if you want to avoid the busy signals, be a good time to call now. One thing I do want to go over is a bit about your fall garden, and this is such an unusual summer, and not in a good way with our lack of rain, with our extreme heat. Um, there are a lot of things that I'm going to tell you, just put off planting them. I'm not going to be planting the broccoli that I usually plant in August unless we have a big reversal in weather. Just things like broccoli and cauliflower, things if you want to get in another crop of bush beans or some more summer squash, things like that. Um, we've still got some time, so even though I might usually be planting those in August, I'm going to be putting it off till it does get a little bit cooler in the fall. The one exception, though is the tomato crop. Tomatoes, you need to get them planted, especially if you want more big-fruited tomatoes like Celebrity and oh, Arkansas Traveler and Cherokee Purple and Lemon Boy and all of our favorites. Those, you need to get them in the ground. The reason is that the bigger-fruited tomatoes are sensitive to nighttime temperatures. In order to set fruit, you have to have kind of a mid-range temperature. Your large-fruited tomatoes will not set fruit if the nights are too hot. They won't set fruit if the nights are too chilly. So we plant our fall tomatoes right about this time of year so that the plants have a chance to grow and get well-established. And by the time they start to bloom, the temperatures uh, will be suitable for setting fruit, but you'll be able to get in a good harvest before things get too cold if we have a typical fall. So um, I know it's hot. I know it's not a great time to be working in the garden, but the one thing that you do need to get planted are your tomatoes, especially the large-fruited tomatoes. Now, they would like a little bit of sun protection. They would like a little shade. Um, and they would like a little bit of protection from the really hot, dry winds we have some afternoons. So you do it however it works well for you. I'll tell you how I do it, and it works extremely well for me. When I plant my new transplants, and by the way, most nurseries have their fall tomato transplants in right now, very nice plants as a matter of fact. But when I plant my transplants, I go ahead, and even though those little plants are only four or five inches tall, 
I go ahead and put my tomato cage on top of them because I know ultimately they're going to grow six feet tall. But I go ahead and put the tomato cage over the little plants, and then I take a piece of uh, the insulate fabric, the same thing we use for cold protection. I guess you can use shade cloth if you want to, but I just use the insulate, and I will wrap about the bottom two, two and a half feet of the tomato cage with a sheet of that. Really easy to do. I just put it on with clothespins. <laughs> It goes very quickly and uh, certainly not rocket science. Anybody can do this without any problem at all. But I just wrap the insulate around uh, maybe the bottom two to two and a half feet of the tomato cage. That gives the tomatoes the shade they need, but it still lets plenty of light through for them to go on with their photosynthesis. Let's plenty of light for them to grow well, grow bushy. And by the time they get up above that uh, level of the insulate, they're going to be full and thick and ready to take on the sun no matter how hot and bright it is. Plus, the insulate is a tightly woven enough fabric that uh, it will really cut down on the hot, dry winds. You just, I think you'd be amazed at, uh, um, at how much better your tomato plants will get started and as a result, how many more tomatoes you will have this fall. Now, cherry tomatoes, I recommend you plant them as soon as you can. They are not nearly as uh, sensitive to nighttime temperatures about setting fruit, but uh, uh, those spring plants may be kind of playing out, and I don't know about you, but I don't want to be without my sweet 100s, my Juliet's, my sun gold, so get your cherries planted the same way. But once again, they're, most all the transplants you're getting probably came out of a greenhouse situation, and they're just not ready to go sit out in that full sun. So arrange to give them a little protection uh, with shade cloth, with insulate, whatever you use, and you'll certainly get them off to a better start. Uh, looks like people suddenly woke up, and we have Don and Clint and, uh, and Janie and John all waiting to talk, so we better get back to the phone lines, and uh, Don is first in line. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I'm wondering, I haven't planted the squash yet because it, the tractor overheats outside for some reason. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> I don't know. My question is now, I'm, I'm already looking at towards planting my beets. What uh -huh. time, what month do I need to start looking at it? Because last year I planted out a pound of them and I caught that first freeze and I lost every one of them. Well, it's, you know, I, one thing I'm not stupid enough to do is try to predict the weather. So it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to tell you exactly. I will tell you that beets, once they are well established, uh, they are pretty cold resistant, but when they're small plants, just like you said, they, they will freeze down. So typically around October is a good time to look at getting your beet seed into the ground, but, um, at least for the first three or four weeks, um, I would be prepared to cover them. I'd be prepared to put a layer of insulate over them. What, uh, you know, what I like to do is just, uh, I I make a like a, a little pipe frame that's kind of like an upside down U, and I usually use half inch pipe, and uh, I'll let the legs on it be maybe three feet long, and then the top usually about six feet long or so, and I will go and just press that down into the ground enough to be stable over the center of the row, and then I can just drape my frost cloth, my insulate over the top, weight down the edges, and that'll take you down into the teens without any damage to your beets, but. Um, Typically, 
mid-October, when we when we cool down just a little bit, is going to be the best time to get your beet seed planted, along with turnips, along with carrots, along with radishes. Most all the root crops go in about that time frame. Yeah, I just keep wondering when it's going to rain in the line. It, we, all we get is the sun. Tell me about it. <laughs> it's... Uh, it's it's hard on the plants, and from a fire standpoint, is downright scary. But uh, um, you know, old Alton Grimm, my one of my mentors, used to always tell me, "Well, every day we're one day closer to the next good rain." I'm just ready for it to get here. I'm just ready for a sprinkle. <laughs> Anything, yes, sir. Yeah. All righty. Thank you very much. You have a great weekend. Good to talk to you, Don. Thank you for the call. Next in line is Clint. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. How's it going? <laughs> I think you know the answer to that. Yeah. It's hot. It's dry, but uh, we're still making the most of it, just like you are. So uh, keep smiling and sweating, and put that sunscreen on. That sounds like the next week forecast: hot and dry. <laughs> sounds like the next month's forecast. They're actually saying a week from Tuesday we have an increasing chance, but if it's like most weeks, that'll go away by the time it gets here. But you know, it's. Uh, I, I I still don't, uh, uh, I was further north last week, and uh, nice place to be in the summer, but I, I'm not going to trade uh, trade our winters for theirs, but um, it it will cool down. I just wish you to hurry up and get here. Uh, amen to that. On fruit trees, how often should you be putting azomite out? Is that once a month, too, once a quarter? You know, and and as a matter of fact, I asked the uh, man that produces azomite that at a trade show yesterday. As a matter of fact, and he said that they are that they are recommending you know on vegetable gardens and things like that. Just put a little more out every time you plant a new crop. Um, he said on fruit trees that probably somewhere between thirty and ninety days. Uh, they're coming out with some new. Uh, I guess you'd say textures of azomite. They're coming out with a very fine textured azomite, which will work even more quickly, but which won't last as long. I'm still probably going to be using the granular form, which, you know, just a little bit smaller than rock salt. And uh, he was saying in really poor soils, maybe every six months, really good soils, maybe once a year. Where do they make that at? It's a mined material, and I don't honestly know where it comes from. It's uh, uh, I'm going to see him again at a different trade show meeting this next week, so uh, I, I may just ask him uh, where it all comes from. But uh, I know that it is a material kind of like green sand. It is an ore that is mined, and um, I, I'll have to find out where. I know it's. I think it's somewhere here in Texas. It's not shipped in from you know Scandinavia or somewhere like that. But uh, I, I don't know exactly where the deposits are. It may be different from a, from a pear tree because it's still holding all its pears where last year it loaded down and the first wind blew all the pears off. So yep. it definitely helped that out, whatever it was lacking. Well, it's a remarkable product in my experience. I've seen no sign of any burning, no sign of any negatives to it. But, you know, there are products out there like green sand and like some of the different iron products that when you have a, a yellowing due to nutrient deficiency – uh, or micronutrient deficiency, you can put these things out, and the next leaves that come out on the plant will typically be a lot greener. What I've seen with azomite is that a lot of the leaves that were yellowing, you don't have to wait for new leaves. Those old leaves that are yellow suddenly green back up, 
And I've seen this on Vinca, seen it on Comfrey, seen it on uh, a number of different things that I've tried the Azomite on. So uh, I'm really sold on it. It's become a, a part of my bed preparation when I plant just about anything. Yeah. Now, when it comes to fertilizer, I'm guessing dog poop is the wrong type of fertilizer. Well, it's um, it's not really a fertilizer. It is a it is a waste product. I don't think it should go into the landfill. Um, it's uh, there's nothing wrong with it. I would tend to blend it into the compost pile with lots of other materials, but um, uh, it's not a you know toxic product or any negatives about it it's just not real pleasant to work with but uh i tell you on the on the yard if you have a strong nozzle on your hole then you can just kind of you know wash it down just you know blend it in and and wash it down into the soil that's fine if you're picking it up uh, again i wouldn't necessarily you know put it in the put it in the waste i'd probably throw it out in the compost pile compost pile now, on that Medina Growing Green, any chance they're working on the dust control on that product? They Are you talking about the new Growing Green or the original Growing Green? No, the original. I haven't tried the new stuff. This is the original. The only thing you get, yeah. you get that fine dust, and you put more than one bag out, you're pretty well, the cotton on my jeans starts growing again. So I'm so covered. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'm going to see Stuart on Wednesday. I will ask him. I'll make a note right now to ask him. I know at one point... Uh, that product they actually produce over in Hondo. They take the raw materials and have a pelletizing mill where they actually make it there. Uh, their newer product already comes to them pelletized, and that's why they can't really add anything to it, and they can't really change it. Uh, but I'll, I'll ask them Wednesday uh, if, uh, what they're doing. I know they addressed that issue at one point, but uh, uh, and you know who knows whether the bag you got is from a year ago or from a week ago as far as when it was produced, but uh, I'll, I'll ask him that question, But uh, and I certainly don't mind doing so, but I, I don't have an answer at this point. Good deal. All right, well, I appreciate your time. I always appreciate hearing from you, Clint. You get out and have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. you take care. Uh-huh. Goodbye. All right, guess we better get a break in here, and uh, looks like I have the pleasure of talking to you about Dr. Mark Williamson, and uh, it's funny, I was uh, <laughs> talking to a, a different dentist friend that was in the nursery yesterday, and I asked him if he knew Dr. Williamson and had known Dr. Staffel, and absolutely nothing but compliments. Even the other do- uh, dentist uh, recognized what a good what a good dentist, what a good man Dr. Williamson is. And uh, if you're looking for a new dentist, if your dentist is retired, or if you're new to the area, or for whatever reason, you're looking for the very best person out there to help you maintain good oral health, I sure take a look at Dr. Williamson and Associates. Their office is, oh, just an incredibly friendly place. Uh, Dr. Williamson himself is probably the most broadly trained dentist I've ever known. Uh, so many of today's dentists, and, and again, my friend and I were talking about how the young dentists just don't have the skills they're being taught. Send them all out to a specialist. Well, Dr. Williamson is that specialist. He's not going to be farming you out to somebody else. He's going to take care of your dental issues right there in his office. That's going to save you time, going to save you money. And I can tell you, I guess nobody looks forward to going to the having dental treatments, but you will certainly find his office to be the friendliest, most relaxing dental experience you've probably already had. And if you are, you know, if, if you really have trouble with that, they still do uh, the technique that uh, Dr. 
uh, Stoffel pioneered with the sedation dentistry and just, just to make you more comfortable. Bottom line is, if you need a good dentist, uh, like I say, maybe yours retired, maybe you're new to the area, I would sure consider Dr. Williamson and Associates. Their office is uh, real conveniently located. It's out uh, basically on Cherry Ridge Drive. It's just north of 410, just uh, east of I-10 on the northwest side of town. Easy to find, and boy, is it a pleasure when you get out there. Have any questions, give them a call, 210-341-2569. That's Dr. Williamson and Associates, 210-341-2569. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. The next two callers are going to be Janie and John. Janie is first in line. Good morning, Janie. Good morning, Bob. Good to hear your voice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I listen to you on the radio, but there's things that I want to say and I forget. But there's uh, another government that I listen to once in a while, and uh, some lady called and said that her plants, her roses, her other ones, they look, which I know, they're not, they're not as healthy as they were before because of this weather. Mm-hmm. But he recommended, and I forgot the name, I know it was something with wheat, like wheat, and something that you mix into water, and you pour it into your plant to make them strong to stay as healthy as they can so they'll start be okay for when it's time for them to bloom. So I don't know if you ever heard of anything like that. I have heard of people doing that with alfalfa. I've not heard of using wheat for that purpose, but alfalfa is a legume and uh, it's certainly a good product to use. Uh, what we really need is just cooler weather and a little bit of rain. But um, I, it's, I don't know that I've ever, you know, I could say that uh, a healthy plant, I don't think it necessarily will make it healthier. And people that are mulching, people that are using good organic fertilizers, people that are spraying with uh, seaweed and molasses and things like that, I don't think they would get a lot of benefit out of it for roses that have been neglected. Uh, it certainly won't hurt anything. And uh, uh, again, we we sometimes put a little wheat into compost tea, mainly just to stimulate some that, different that's, microbes. That's what it was. Seaweed. Yeah. That's what he said. Okay. You no, know, seaweed is yeah, seaweed is an outstanding product. It's. Uh, I've recommended seaweed for as many years as I've been in this business. Now, there are differences in seaweed. Uh, what you go pick up along, you know, the shore of Port Aransas, you'd have to wash it really, 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 really good to get all the salt out of it. But what they call the cold water kelps, uh, the seaweeds that grow off of Nova Scotia and South Africa and places like that, those are one of the best possible things you can use on plants, uh, especially to spray on the foliage. Uh, I know Medina packages an especially good one, and I've recommended it there. And they just call it liquid seaweed. They also put it in some of their fertilizers, but uh, uh, Medina's liquid seaweed, I've been recommending that for 20 years or more. Uh, there, is that a liquid that you can yes. put to? Yes. Okay, do you sell something like that? We have it in quarts and gallons. I think just about any good nursery will. Okay. And you, you use yes. yeah liquid seaweed, and you're going to mix about two tablespoons of it per gallon of water. 
You can pour it on the plants if you like, but I like spraying it on the foliage. I think it's good to put some on the roots, but it gets into the plant faster if you spray it on the foliage. And, yeah, I use it on everything from roses to tomatoes. It also, there are other benefits to it, Janie, not just making things healthier, but it will make things more cold-hardy. If you start spraying in the fall and you spray regularly with liquid seaweed, uh, your plants will go an extra 5 to 10 degrees without freezing, and it also makes your plants much more resistant to spider mites. So, yeah, I love seaweed. How, how much, uh, how often should you do that? I recommend if the plants are, you know, in your garden and things, I usually say every two weeks. Every two weeks, okay. Seaweeds, I just hope I don't forget that. Okay. <laughs> you That's call me back if you, you do, to... and you call me back and well, say, I'm... what was it I was supposed not to forget? <laughs> No, uh, yeah, great question. Something. I mean, they 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 look healthy, but no flowers. There's only a couple of them that has a flower, but I don't know the name of it. I know it's a bush, and it mm-hmm. it looks like blue, and then there's white, and those they they keep blooming all the time. I water them pretty good. Yeah. So, okay. Well, seaweed. Everything, yeah, the the blooms that are coming out now aren't as big and they're not as fragrant as the blooms we had in the spring. But uh, when it cools off, you know, they'll be pretty again in the fall. And we're coming up, we're just uh, a few weeks away, a month, just a little over, well, actually, what are we? We're we're about three weeks away from the 1st of September, Labor Day. And I recommend around Labor Day on bush roses, you cut them back by about a third to stimulate a bunch of new growth. And that's what's going to give you the most beautiful fall flowers. So start with your seaweed as soon as you can. But uh, uh, oh, come yeah. 1st of September, yeah, we'll, we'll be doing some extra fertilizing. We'll be doing a little bit of pruning, too. But, yeah, fall is fall's a pretty season for roses as well, as you well know. All right. Thanks a whole lot. Thank well, you. Well, you're certainly welcome. Thank you. All right. John is, John is next in line. Good morning, John. Hello. Hi there. How's it going? Hi. It's another, <laughs> sun just came out, so it's another hot morning, but uh, every day's a good day. Some are just better than others. Oh, yeah. Listen, I've had uh, some visitors over in my yard, and they're very uh, annoying. Uh, so the first one I want to ask about is um, these giant grasshoppers. Yeah. The locusts, I believe. Well, they they're... everything. Yeah, and, locusts uh, and grasshoppers both. We used to be able to get a product, and I hope it'll be back on the market next spring, that's called NOLO, or sometimes it's sold as Semispore. It's a bacterial product we put out early in the year that makes the young grasshoppers sick, and then the big grasshoppers eat the little grasshoppers, and they get sick. But this year it was not available, and grasshoppers are... I mean, there's just not much that'll kill them other than slamming them between two bricks or shooting them with something. But um, you can make your plants more resistant to grasshopper damage by spraying them with a product. It's sometimes sold under the name of Surround, S-U-R-R-O-U-N-D, Surround Wettable Powder, Surround WP, or it's sometimes sold as Kaolin, K-A-O-L-I-N, Kaolin Clay. Uh, It's a product that doesn't, doesn't really kill them but it upsets their digestion you spray it on the foliage and uh they they will not be nearly as bad i won't say it'll stop them a hundred percent but they will avoid eating the foliage that you sprayed with the kaolin clay oh okay great great yeah i'll try that i try that uh the other thing 
man, these pesky ants. Yeah. They, and they eat my crepe myrtles up in within hours. <laughs> well, there are a couple of different ways to deal with them. As far as a spray to use, which is safe, uh, the spray called Spinosad, S-P-I-N-O-S-A-D. Spinosad will control virtually every ant out there, and it's totally safe for people and pets and everything else. But on a tree... Um, and it sounds like you probably got leaf cutting ants, uh, you know, on your crepe myrtles. Uh, there's so many different kinds of ants, but the leaf cutters are the ones that, you know, probably do the most damage. But if you have a tree that has an exposed trunk, you can actually wrap that trunk either with a piece of, uh, plastic wrap or you can wrap it with aluminum foil. And there is a material. It used to be called tangle foot. I've got to go look and see what it is, but it's, it's like this super sticky stuff that uh, you just paint, in effect, a band of it around. The ants can't walk across it. You put about a two- or three-inch wide strip of this stuff, and again, don't put it directly on the bark, because sometimes it causes a little burning on the bark. But wrap the wrap the trunk of that crepe myrtle with, uh, with either plastic or, or aluminum foil, and then just smear some of this stuff up and down the trunk, and the ants will not be able to go across it. Oh, okay. Oh, that sounds good. Well, I appreciate oh, yeah. that. Thank well, you, it's my pleasure. Anything else I can help with? No, no, that's it. <laughs> okay. Well, you get out and have a good Sunday. I appreciate the call. Uh, all Thank- right. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right, Jimmy, I guess we better get our last break of the hour in. We'll be right back with more phone calls. All right. Back to gardening and back to the phone lines. I believe uh looks like next in line we will be talking to Patrick and then to Christine and Jean. Patrick's up first. Good morning, Patrick. How you doing? I'm off to a good start. How about yourself today? I am doing great. One, because I'm talking to you. Um, <laughs> well, you're I've very got, kind. Thank you. I have transplanted a bunch of jujube trees. Uh, I have a tree that was put in probably in 1975. Uh huh. And it it had a lot. My kids eat them and throw these seeds into the uh, grass. <laughs> I had a bunch of grow. Yes, sir. Um, so they've been growing for about three, four years. Some of them, and I dug up as best I could as much root, and I planted them in three gallon pots. Okay. And I watered them every day, twice a day, and and did everything I think I needed. They're all all doing well right now. Mm-hmm. Um, my question with those, and I also have a bunch of hedge apples uh, that I transplant or I got from seed uh-huh. up in Oklahoma and I put those in one gallon pots and a bunch of um, red oaks in three gallon pots that I've uh, grown basically from ones that just had popped up. So my question is how often should I be watering these things? Cause I was, I listened to you a couple weeks ago and you said um, overwatering, watering too often was bad. I quit and they seem to be doing much better. Um, but about every other day, in a three-gallon or one-gallon pot, or should I be doing them once a day? You just have to feel the soil because uh-huh. the the more foliage a plant has, the more water it's going to use through the process we call transpiration. The water doesn't evaporate out of that pot. It goes up through the roots and comes out through the leaves of the plant. So the windier it is, the more transpiration we have, the more water the plant's going to use. The bigger the plant is, the more leaves it has, the more water it's going to use. The warmer it is, the more water it's going to use. So uh, there's 
there's no way that you can water on a schedule. It's just a matter, and don't go out and buy one of these stupid moisture meters. They actually don't measure moisture. They measure what we call electroconductivity, which is basically a measure of salt in the soil. So get used to just sticking your index finger down in the pot. Now, if you really water thoroughly when you water, then chances are if one of those jujubes is dry, then all of them are going to be dry. So you don't necessarily have to feel every plant. But um, you will get a feel for how often it is on average. The other thing that I think is very important to know is that um, plants many times droop from the heat, kind of like we do. And because a plant is droopy does not necessarily mean that it's dry. And my general rule is if it's droopy in the afternoon, don't worry about it. If it's still droopy the next morning, water it because uh, it is dry in that case. So I don't know if that helps or not. I just, you know, and, and keep in mind, as you've probably heard me say too many times, that water doesn't hurt anything, that what hurts is when a plant stays so wet that the water drives all the oxygen out of the soil, then what actually happens is that the uh that the roots are suffering from lack of oxygen. I mean, if somebody stuck my head in a bucket of water for 10 minutes, water wouldn't kill me. The lack of oxygen would, and plants are the same way. So when you water, you never have to worry about putting too much water on them, but you want to let the soil dry to the proper point before you water again. But like I say, it's going to be more often in the summer than it is in the winter. It's going to be more often in windy weather than it is in calm weather. And it's going to be more often in hot weather than it is in cool weather. So I haven't answered your question, but I hope I've told you how to figure it out. Yeah, I'll just keep doing that. I'll keep, I keep. I do the finger thing, but I'm. I was tempted not to water them because they're looking so much better when I don't water them as much. Yep. Yep. Um, one quick other question is: I'm on six and a half acres, and I do a lot of rooting up sandburrs. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where I filled an entire garbage can. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, but they keep coming up in places that, that I, they're small enough. How can I control them? I, I recall sometime you had told me they like poor soil, so composting or something. Is and that, Is that what I should be doing or molasses? It's and, – and, you know, six and a half acres, there's no – economical way unless you just won the lottery that you can compost that much land um sickerburrs grass burrs we just call them a real pain in the grass um they are the weakest plant out there so on acreage what i have always done is uh is just keep you know outlet plant something else that will out compete them uh, I had a field where I used to uh, plow and plant coast or plant Sudan hay every year, and I mean the the stickerbirds were so thick you couldn't walk into it. Uh, I, when I went back to native grasses and um, you know made certain that I wasn't overgrazing, uh, it was very hard to find a sticker burr. in smaller areas. Compost, and I think it has something to do with the humic acids in the compost, are just a miracle as far as keeping them from growing in the first place. I had a place in, uh, I have a small yard around my house, a bigger yard that's deer proof, and then lots of acres around it. But in that bigger yard, uh, we'd always maintained a croquet court. And I mean, the sickerbirds were so thick, the dogs wouldn't walk into it. I put like a half an inch of compost on it. Uh, I think it was in October. The next spring, I think I pulled about four stickerbirds out of the entire area. So where it's practical Compost, maybe even with a little bit extra humic acid, uh, that is the thing that I have found that just almost totally eliminated them. 
But on acreage where it's not practical to do that, then just do everything you can to keep it from being overgrazed to uh, get your good native grasses established. And they will very definitely choke the sticker birds out. Sticker birds are the weakest plants out there, but uh, uh, they are a pain where they occur. All right, great. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the call. <laughs> you get out and have a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much. Thanks. Okay, certainly. Um, let's see, Jimmy, I believe we're up to Christine. Is that right? Christine's next. Good morning, yes, Christine. Good morning, Christine. Hey, good morning. It's Christy, but that's okay. Christy, <laughs> I'm sure you've answered the worst. Good morning, Christy. Yeah, oh, I have, believe me. So, Bob, I want to talk to you about long-term damage control. So, you know, on the 10 acres we have up there in Mason, I've got some beautiful, beautiful old trees. Uh-huh. Obviously, I cannot get a hose out to them. I've thought about putting tra- uh, water in the tractor bucket. Mm-hmm. to water them, but I still can't get them the type of water they need. What do I do to prepare for potential rain to help these trees out? Well, I, again, a mulch on the surface of the soil is probably the single best thing that you can do. Mulching keeps the soil cooler. Mulching reduces evaporation. Mulcher helps. Mulching helps the moisture that you get soak into the ground rather than running off. So a couple of inches of mulch around the plants, um, not right up against the trunks, but a couple of inches of mulch is going to be one of the best things you can do. Now, I'm not a fan of these things they call gator bags uh, that people put around trees, but what I have always done, and it was really funny, um, and and don't really have time to talk a lot about it, but I've always just taken like an old five-gallon bucket, just a plastic bucket, drilled Mm -hmm. two or three small holes in the bottom of the bucket and put it right near the base of the tree. And then when I go out uh, and I can take, you know, water out in a tank or something like that, and I just fill that bucket and let it slowly soak down into the ground. And I was uh, I was actually in Wisconsin last week, passed some enormous orchards, and lo and behold, there was a five-gallon bucket at the base of each tree, and they were doing exactly the same thing. So the number one thing that you, you know, you, you can do without hauling water uh, would be just good mulch around the trees. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. It could just be the free stuff you get from the brush dump. But that's number one. Number two, if you are able to get some water to the trees, you know, just a five-gallon bucket. I put a rock in the bottom so it doesn't blow over or turn over. But just or the drill, cows knock it over. Or the cows knock it over, yep. I'll just drill a, a few little, you know, eighth-inch or quarter-inch holes in the bottom of the bucket, and that just keeps the water coming out slowly, and it all goes right down to the root system where where you want it to go. Now, hang on just Could a I second. Do multiple buckets on these trees? Because oh, I can't absolutely. hug any of yeah. these trees. Yeah, multiple buckets is fine. If you want to hang on a minute, we can talk a little bit more, but I've got to go to news here on KTSA Radio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Into our third hour of gardening. Uh, then first thing you know, it'll be time for Dr. Kirby and your pet's health starting about an hour from now. But uh, going to visit a little bit more with Christine and then with Jean and then have some open lines. So if you've been getting a busy signal the past few minutes, this would be a good time to dial. You'll probably get right through. Good morning once again, Christine. And uh, back to those trees that you're concerned about getting water out to them. Yeah, so now I do know they have the most beautiful natural forest 
compost around them, right? I never take the leaves and the little shrubs and everything out from under. So would I put a new compost on top of the forest floor to help them? It would help. Would green sand help? I don't know. Well, additional compost will help with the water issue. Now, as far as nutrients, um, I tell you, I'm using a lot more. There's a product out there called Azomite, A-Z-O-M-I-T-E. Oh, I have a lot of it. No, no, no. I got two bags up there. Well, I call that green sand on steroids. <laughs> it's okay. it it okay. does everything green sand does and so much more. That will help them. Uh, do not use any synthetic fertilizers because that just increases the water use. But your organic products, your Medina, Mustard Grow, Nature's Creation, a little bit of that will help and will not increase their water uptake. But uh, uh, where you can't easily get water to them, the mulching is going to be the single most important thing you do. Okay, should I put azomite, then the mulch, or mulch, then azomite? Because I have bags up there. I've been listening to you for years, and I'm actually here at Rainbow Gardens getting two (laughs) bags. Hopefully, they have dry molasses for the pasture. Well, I'm hoping it's going to rain soon. I hope you're right. (laughs) Good luck. And and if it rains tonight, I'll give you full credit, but... uh, I'm not counting on it. But anyway, no, it it would be best to put the mulch on top of azomite. And if you put want to put some dry molasses there, too. But it doesn't make any difference. You can put the other things on top. It's just when you put the, the azomite, the dry molasses, the fertilizer closer to the ground, then put the mulch on top of it, this really stimulates the microbes and it just processes the material faster. So do what's easiest for you. But if you have a choice, uh, azomite down mulch and compost on top great that's what i will do now i'm i i feel confident we're going to get rain <laughs> shortly and i want to prep everything to hold it use it um the grass is obviously what the cows didn't eat down is dry as can oh, yeah. be but yep. i think if i put the molasses down and it rains and the azomite everything will jump into action that's oh it it absolutely will but um if you've got dry brown grass uh do especially if it's around your home or your barns things like that do keep it mowed down because uh uh, as you have the perimeter yeah yeah it's uh well and up against the buildings because it's just for fire safety You'd much rather have short grass than tall grass. So anyway, well, listen, it's a pleasure Thank hearing you so from much. you. You have you, a great day. You do the same. Thank you so much. And we'll move on and talk to Jean next. Good morning, Jean. Good morning, Mr. Bob. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. Uh, How can I help? Thank you, sir. My question is hackberry. I have hackberry that's growing down the fence line and every year I trim it, and I cannot get rid of it. I I feel your pain, so to speak. I, I I follow. You know, I have exactly the same problem. Are there any other trees? Are there any other good plants that you want to protect along around those hackberries? No, sir. Okay, uh, it's not organic. But the one thing that I have found will kill the roots is just diesel, just old diesel fuel. And I do this more on mesquites, and uh, which are the hardest thing for me to control on my ranch. And I will cut it off at uh, ground level and then just, you know, put, you know, a half a cup or just a small amount of diesel over the cut. And that, uh-huh. you know, that definitely kills them. Now, 
if it were if they were mixed in among other trees, we would talk about um, uh, doing what we call girdling them, where you just strip the bark off for an area about four inches wide on the trunk. You just strip the bark off, you know, all the way down to the heartwood underneath. You don't cut them off, but you you uh-huh. cut the bark, you strip off the layer that is just underneath it. This is what our forefathers did a couple hundred years ago, clearing land when this country was first settled. But you do this, and then you just walk away from it. The hackberry is, or any other tree is going to continue to look good for up to a year because the central wow. core of the tree is a tissue called xylem that keeps on pumping water up to the top of the tree. But the tissue that you just peeled away is called phloem, and that's what takes the nutrients that are processed in the leaves and takes it down to feed the roots. When you disrupt that phloem tissue through girdling, uh, the roots don't know it, but they're on a limited life now because as soon as they use up the stored nutrients, the tree just folds up and dies. But you still have to, and you don't cut it back. You still have to sit there and look at it for about a year, and uh, uh, and then then the tree dies and doesn't come back. And uh, that that's the principle behind it. Unfortunately, that happens when we don't want it to. Uh, with things like porcupines that may chew the bark off around a tree, like careless people with a line trimmer that get up around a young tree and whip the bark off of it. Uh, out in the country, many times deer rubbing their antlers, both to mark their territory and to rub what we call the velvet off, they will sometimes totally girdle trees. And we end up having to take very special steps because uh, um, occasionally we can sometimes, if we have a good tree that's been girdled, there are things we can do to try to save that tree's life. But trees that we want to get rid of, if you're willing to give them a year to die, girdling is the simplest, 100% effective way to kill them. Okay. It's, but um, I've been working on my yard yesterday and today, and I thought, oh, I'm going to get the pruning shears and just cut them down again. But I've, I've done this for so many years, and it keeps coming back. <laughs> well, so if you get tired of doing it on yours, you... Yeah, it's a great time to do it. And uh, the hackberries, it's hard to believe that 100 years ago people cut down oak trees to plant hackberries because they were the newest and latest thing. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> thank God they didn't cut down all the trees in my front yard. But uh, and, and hackberries grow quickly, but when they decide to die, they're a pain, and they make so much seed. They're just, I, I probably dislike hackberries more than I dislike cedar. But uh, like yep. I say, yep. if you want to cut it down and not have to worry about it again, uh, you can just douse that little stump with some diesel, and that will kill it. It's not organic. I don't like to do it. But if you're patient and will girdle, that will totally eliminate the trees. It's just they're going to look like nothing's happened to them for about a year, and then they're just going to fold up and die. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your information, sir. It's always a pleasure, Gene. Thank you for the call this morning. Thank you, sir. You do a great job. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. All right. uh, Next in line is Carol. Good morning, Carol. Morning. Uh, I wanted to know if you should deadhead cannas or not. Does it matter? Um, It doesn't matter a lot. Uh, They will look nicer if you deadhead them. And it may have a very minor influence on making them bloom again. 
cannas tend to, you know, they just put up that, that one spike of flowers, and then that particular spike doesn't rebloom. They grow a new one from the base, and it comes up. And if, they're, if they form a lot of seed pods, and just some varieties will, most varieties won't, if your cannas tend to form a lot of seed pods, then yes, it will help them bloom better if you deadhead them. Uh, otherwise, you're just making them look nicer. You do it if you like, but it doesn't really doesn't really have a big influence on most varieties of cannas. But the ones that make a lot of seed, yes, it'll definitely bring them back into bloom more quickly. Okay. And then on a crepe myrtle, I hate it when people cut them down and they have all those big giant knots, and every year the plant struggles to put on new, but they do seem to bloom better. Uh, how far can you trim back? Mine are older. I bought a house they were already planted, uh, and they're not blooming that well. So how far can I trim them back from the top that will promote growth next spring? Okay. Um yeah, we call that crepe murder, which is what so many people do I believe to them. It, yeah, yeah. Here, it's the, to me. yeah. There, there are a lot of reasons that crepe myrtles don't bloom as well. It may be uh, that they are buried too deeply. It may be a matter of moisture. I'll tell you about pruning in just a minute. But the first thing I would do on your crepe myrtles that are new to you is go out there and look at the base of the plant, the very base where the where the main trunk comes up out of the ground, and you should see that it kind of flares out, kind of broadens out of the base. We call it the root flare. If it looks more like a fence post sticking up out of the ground, you need to Keep pulling the soil back away from the trunk of the crepe myrtle till you get down to where you see those roots flaring out. Ultimately, being buried like that can kill a plant, but it may take 20 years to do it, but it will definitely reduce their flowering. So first of all, be sure that you've got the root flare exposed on them. Um, secondly, if you'll keep them relatively well mulched as best you can, this will help hold the moisture and it will increase the flowering. Um, but if you want to reduce the size there is and get more new growth on them, there's very definitely a way to do it without getting that, that you know, whole little bird's nest of growth. And what you do is any one of those trunks, any one of those limbs that you want to cut down, follow it down to where there's already a smaller limb branching off one direction or another from it and make your cut just above that smaller limb. And rather than have that whole little cluster of new limbs come out, it'll just tell the crepe myrtle, put all your energy into making this new limb develop. It'll make a much nicer looking plant and, you know, you will ultimately have lots more flowers. But never make just a random cut unless it's a branch or a trunk that you just want to cut all the way back to the main trunk that it's coming off of. Instead, just follow it down to where it already has a smaller branch coming out, cut just above that point and you'll have the prettiest grape myrtles in the neighborhood. Okay, and then uh, one other thing is <clears throat> I've had a plumeria because I've moved several different places that's in a pot. And uh, it's, it, well, it's struggled. And this year I had it <clears throat> because the pot it was in was small and it got top heavy. I had it up leaning against the fence so the wind wouldn't get it, privacy fence. And uh, I think a rat ate it at night, all the leaves, every bit. And oh, so, wow. yeah. And then he ate down the, the, you know, the trunk a little bit, too. So I cut that off so it would at least be even. And I see some small little 
nodules like leaves going to come out. Mm-hmm. Can I repot it now? And how deep should I repot it? What should I use uh, for the potting soil? And then do I fertilize now? I'm going to have to, you know, keep it in in the winter because it will freeze right. here. We're right. in Victoria. Right. Um, with all plants, but especially with plumeria, um, it they they are happy in a small pot. Um, okay. You're not going to make the plant much happier moving into a great big pot. In fact, a lot of people, you know, up here in San Antonio in the hill country, uh, they actually pull them out of the ground in the winter and just hang them up in the garage, keep them from freezing, and then replant them again next spring. Oh, wow. So it, uh, they're, I think they grow better if you don't do that. But putting them in a big pot is not going to do anything except make your back hurt when you have to try to drag it in in the winter. I, I tell people the only two reasons to repot a plant is, number one, it gets so top-heavy you can't keep it standing up. And that may be an issue, or at least it was. Or else when it dries out so quickly that you can't keep it watered. The more foliage right. a plant has, the faster it will dry out. So if you get to the point you're having to, you know, water your plumerias, your plumerias four times a day, yeah, put them in a little bit bigger pot. Now, having said that, if you want to put it in a little bit bigger pot, there's nothing wrong to do with doing it right now. You're not going to disturb the roots. You're just going to take the root ball out of the one pot. Uh, your new pot, you're going to put enough soil in the bottom that when you put the plant back in, the soil level is going to be right at the same point. You don't want to bury that trunk okay. any deeper. But you just put enough in the bottom that you can set it in and then fill in around the edge. And if you want to do that, and if you're using a pot that's still going to be movable, that's just fine. And this is a fine time to do it. But don't, you're not going to help your plumerias do better by putting them in great big pots. And no plumerias. I've had this discussion with 10 people in the past week. Everybody's plumerias are not blooming as well as they usually do in this super, super hot summer. Maybe you're not quite as hot as we are, but I suspect Victoria's pretty hot. Pretty hot. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Terrible. Okay, and then do you fertilize, and what uh, do you just use organic potting soil, or do you mix it with sand? What's the best no, thing? No, I, I just, I like a, for plumerias, I like a cactus and succulent mix. Oh, cactus. Um, I okay. think that is ideal. Fertilizers, uh, has to grow plant, the new has to grow liquid fish blend. Uh, those are, I, I like liquid fertilizers on plumerias, and those are two of my favorites. And yes, the more you fertilize, the better your growth will be, and the more flowers you will have. Okay. And it's okay to do it now, even though, you know, yeah. eventually winter is coming. <laughs> <laughs> it will. Water first, and then use your, your liquid fertilizer on it. Uh, and if you happen to get by Earthworks, tell the Laurie that I said hello. Okay. Thank you so much. Yes, I do know of her. Very good. good They're good people. Yes, they do. Carol, thank you for the call today, and you get out and have a good Sunday. Thank Thank you. You too. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, uh, Jimmy, we need to get a break in here. Mike and Mary will be up when we come back. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, let's get back to gardening here, and uh, believe we are up to Mike. Will be the first. I think caller. Mike had to go to church. Oh, Mike <laughs> so, headed out to church. Then uh, I guess Mary. that makes Mary number one, and uh, one line is open and available to you there. So give me a call two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. While I say good morning, Mary. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you today? I'm great, thank you. Um, 
So I have a problem with crepe myrtles. You know, the roots are exposed pretty good. Uh-huh. Uh, they're growing little trees, and it appears that they want to be, like, going underneath my porch in the backyard. Mm. So how will I be hurting those branches if I try to trim them off or something? No, go ahead and trim off anything. And if you put a little mulch over them, if you keep the sunlight from hitting those roots, you will have fewer sprouts come up. Now, crepe myrtles, uh, they just do a bit of that, but you're not going to hurt your main plant one bit. Uh, if they're out in the yard, just mow them off. If they're, you know, where you can, just trim them off as low as you possibly can, and uh, it's not going to bother the big plant at all. Okay, and and how to completely kill um, a Florida peach tree just went dead on me this last winter, and uh-huh. I cut it down all the way down to a little stump, but I can't get rid of it. So what should I do to? And it's close to the crape myrtle, so I don't want to put anything like gasoline in it or anything. Yeah, um, it's I, I no again. Just if if there's any way to in effect just chop it down with a grubbing hoe or something. That's the simplest thing, but if that's not possible, um, you can get, and this is a product that's not harmful to living plants at all, but you can get something at a nursery called stump remover, and okay. the way you do it is you just take a, you know, a carpenter's drill and mm-hmm. put one of those bits on it that's maybe half an inch or five-eighths of an inch diameter and just drill yeah. a bunch of holes down into that stump, fill them with the stump remover, and mm-hmm. it goes to work. It it takes the wood and makes it very spongy, makes it very porous, and it'll be a lot easier to, in effect, just cut it out. Now, if we get back into a wetter season when it's safe to do so, um, what it does is it makes that stump, it, it's not going to flame up or blaze up or anything like that, but you can put just like a couple of charcoal briquettes on it and light and it just kind of smolders its way down into the ground. Now, I would never do that at a time like this when the fire danger is so high. No, but if you if you get some stump remover and drill a hole, put it in there, it'll soften that stump to where you can usually just break it off or, you know, bust it off with the back end of a pickaxe or something like that. But uh, uh, it actually, the stump remover that makes the would more or less dissolve is actually a fertilizer that your crepe myrtle will love. Oh, okay. Well, good. Works both ways. Thank you so much for that information, Bob, and you have a wonderful day. You do the same. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Um, Let's see. You're welcome. Looks like it's going to be Ray and Alan and Robin, and uh, i tell you what, Ray, hang on just a second. All three of you guys hang on a second because I don't want to get behind. Uh, Jimmy, let's get this half-hour commercial break out of the way so we can get back and relax with Ray and Alan and Robin. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, let's get uh, right on back to the phone lines. And uh, let's see here. Jimmy, have I got it right? Is uh, Ray up next? Yes, sir. All right. It's going to be Ray and Alan and Robin. Ray is first. Good morning, Ray. Ray, are you there? Hello, Ray. Looks like uh, Ray, maybe put Ray back on hold. We'll try to come back to him. Let's try Alan. Alan, good morning. Good morning. How are you all? 
Oh, doing well. Just uh, just getting hot again, but that happens every day this time of year, so doesn't do any good to complain. Understand. Uh, when you're uh, watering house plants and maybe plants on your porch, and you got a water softener, is it okay? Is that water any different than the water at your water hose? I mean, I know it's I know it's different. Well, it is it is different, and it yeah. You know, one or two applications are not going to be a problem, but over time, yes, your plants will not like it. Uh, because the way a water softener works, it takes the calcium out of the water, which is a good thing, but it puts sodium in to replace it, which is a bad thing. And your cardiologist will tell you that's not very good for your heart either. So um, what I, number one, find out how your water softener is hooked up. In most cases, uh, it will be only on your indoor hydrants in some cases it'll only be on like an ice maker and uh you know plumbing fixtures or something like that but it will be far better to water with water from outside because generally speaking your outdoor hydrants will not be hooked up you wouldn't want them to be because you'd be wasting you know so much salt and water and just uh it'd get very expensive but anytime you can Take that watering can outside to fill it up because soft water over time will be very damaging to your house plants and really in anything you put it on. Well, I guess they're going to get a different water pattern then because that's what I've been doing for a long time. But, um, uh, yeah, I, no, I know my faucets outside are not hooked to the water softener, but every faucet in the house is. Okay, well, here's one, here's one other thing you can do um, that would be good for you and would make it fine you know, for the plants, and that is you don't have to put sodium salt in most uh, water softeners. Uh, you can put potassium salt in there. It's slightly more expensive, but uh, potassium salt works just as well to give you the soft water, but potassium is not harmful to things the way sodium is. Like I say, some plants are tough and hardy enough. It's not going to bother them. Um, some plants will go fine on it for five years, and then the salt will kind of build up, and and you'll start seeing problems. So, um, you don't that that's the one option. And uh, again, ask your doctor. I think he will tell you that you would if you're if you're drinking water out of the tap, uh, it would be a lot better to drink water that's softened with potassium rather than sodium. Okay, I don't know what I'm buying. I'm buying the same blue bag uh, bought for ever. Yeah. Um, but I, it's, I get. I think it's called solar salt. You know, it's that blue bag at the. Yeah, just look and just look and see. Yeah, see what it contains. It'll tell you either say it contains sodium chloride or potassium chloride. And uh, from the standpoint of uh, you know of living creatures, potassium chloride will be better. Okay. Uh, one other quick question. I, I bought a few vegetable plants from you uh, last weekend. Uh huh. And I've had them sitting on the garage, you know, with some light, uh, and I'm afraid to put them in the ground. Should I, if I put them in the ground, just make sure they get watered and covered? Well, if they, if you can create a little bit of protection for them, the temperatures, you know, and obviously if it's in the garage, temperature, hot temperature is not going to bother them, but this intense sunlight will be hard on them at first. So, um, they're probably tomatoes and peppers because that's mostly what are available right now what i do in my own garden when i put the tomatoes when i plant the tomatoes i will go ahead and put my cage down over the top of the little bitty plants even though they certainly don't need the cage at that point but i'll go ahead and put the cage over them and then i will wrap 
that cage about you know two feet up with uh, I just use insulate the same fabric that we use to protect things from cold it allows enough light to go through that plants you know grow real well but uh, it has enough shade to cut down on the heat and it also cuts down on the real dry wind so uh, rather than wait until they're up waist high to put the cages on, I just put them on immediately. I just take a clothespin, put that layer of insulate around, and, you know, you can if you're putting them out that way, you can do it this afternoon. Okay. But all these houseplants, I should use the water from the faucet outside, that kind of water. That it will be better for them. Uh, you may have tough things like ficus benjamina and some of those that really don't seem to care that much about the sodium, but any of your more delicate houseplants will do much, much better with the with the outside water. All right. Great. Uh, good to know. Thank you very much. It is my pleasure. Thank you for the call this morning. I really appreciate it. Uh, let's uh, try and see if, uh, if Ray uh, made it back. Uh, Ray, are you there? No, Ray didn't make it back. Ray dropped off. Well, then we'll just uh, move right along and talk to Robin. <laughs> good morning, Robin. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I had a gorgeous, big, huge coleus plant. Mm-hmm. It was in a container, and it started getting real leggy. And even though I thought I was taking good care of it, it was mostly in the shade. It's uh, very leggy, and it's yellow leaves. Um, it looks looking terrible. And I wondered, can I just take some cuttings from the top and put them in uh, a perlite mix? And start Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. You can start as new, uh, many new cuttings as you like. Um, I would feed your old plant. If it's getting yellow leaves, it's getting a little too dry. So I think you're going to need to water a little more often, but... Uh, uh, I would definitely root your cutting. She'll have plenty of new plants to set out, and that big old plant will probably branch out and come back fuller and thicker and prettier than ever if you give it a little fertilizer and a little bit of water. It's it's not done for. It ought to come back out and stay pretty up till freezing weather. But having some new plants to either plant in with it or plant in separate pots is also a great idea, and coleus are extremely easy to root. Okay, great. Now, what what would the do I mix perlite in with uh, a potting soil? No, for the root? no. What do? Just uh, just take an empty pot and fill it with perlite. Uh, put your cuttings in there. Your cuttings should be pretty short, no more than about three inches long. Strip off any lower leaves, and if they have any flowers on them, pinch those off. But you know, in an eight-inch pot, you could probably put about ten cuttings in there. Uh, keep them very wet. You don't have to worry about, you know, too much water. I'd, I'd wet that perlite every day, maybe twice a day, and they should root in about two weeks. And at that point, you just take them out of the perlite, pot them into the soil, and you've got a whole new forest to grow. Okay. I'm very excited about that. Thank you so much. You are certainly welcome. And, uh, yeah, coleus, uh, coleus are one of the easiest plants you could possibly root. And uh, you'll, they should go all the way up till freezing weather. And uh, you might even have a couple of extra cuttings to share with your friends or trade for something else that you want, Robin. So uh, I think you'd be very successful at it. Okay. All right. Your phone's, your phone's fading out on us there, but I hope we got that question answered. Uh, let's move on and talk to Howard, and then it will be Craig. Good morning, Howard. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. I uh, 
my my first question, I have two. My first question is, I have a pomegranate bush. It's about eight uh-huh. years old. Okay. And it, it, it's really strange. Um, this year, uh, just within the last week or two, it's flowered like with five flowers. The year before, <laughs> okay. uh-huh. there was only one flower. The year before mm-hmm. that, it was full of flowers. The year before that, it was one flower. And I just don't understand it. <laughs> well, you know, and is does this ever make fruit? Or well, there are two different types of pomegranates. One of them is called an ornamental pomegranate, which doesn't make much fruit, but it should give you a lot of flowers. And then we have varieties. Most common is called wonderful that are actually grown, you know, not so much for their flowers, but to make fruit for you to eat. Do you have any idea which one you have? I don't. It might be the ornamental. It has. It never has had fruit. Okay. Um, and is it in full sun? Yes. Okay. You need to, um, in the winter months, I thin them out, and that always seems to help them with the blooming. But it's just more water and more fertilizer are what are going to give you more flowers. Now, when we have a super cold winter, like we had in 2021, and then we had last this past winter, we had, you know, it got real cold, not quite as cold as 2021. That mm-hmm. that damages the wood that will make the flowers. So oh. it, that's, that's kind of what you're looking at is following a really cold winter, you don't have as many flowers. Then when we have a milder winter, then you get a ton of flowers on it. But um, very seldom does it get cold enough to actually kill the plant. But uh, I think you're just looking at the results of having had some super, super cold winters. And uh, hopefully we will be back into a more typical, milder winter. And you should go back to a tremendous number of flowers next year. Uh, once the plant really matures, you start get to the point of you, know, you probably have pretty good flowering, whether you've had cold weather or not. But I, I think the weather is what's responsible for you know, a real good year one year, and then not so much the next. Uh, the drought also has something to do with it. So uh, especially if you're seeing any yellow leaves, try to water a little more thoroughly, a little bit more regularly, because pomegranates really do like lots of moisture. And, and what's the fertilizer I should be using? You can use the same thing you use on your grass. If you want to use a dry fertilizer, uh, okay. Medina's Growing Green or Texas Tea by Maestro Grow or Premium Lawn and Garden Food by uh, Nature's Creation, those are all great. If you want a fertilizer that works a little faster, uh, use a liquid like Medina's uh, Hester Grow plant or their liquid fish blend, uh, whatever's convenient for you. The plants aren't that picky. Uh, the liquids work faster. The granulars last longer, so uh, you can use one or both. Okay. And then my last question, I have a tomato plant, and uh, I grew it from a seed, and uh, when it was about... Two feet tall, I got one tomato on it, uh-huh. and then after that, it's now about four feet tall, but it has never had another tomato. <laughs> and what that is probably due to, you probably were a little late getting started with it in the spring, and it uh, the tomato it had was a fair-sized tomato, wasn't it? Not a little tiny one? You're right. Okay. The bigger-fruited tomatoes are very sensitive to nighttime temperatures, and when the weather gets hot they stop setting fruit. When it cools off, they'll start making more fruit. And this is why we try to get tomatoes started, 
you know, as soon as we can after freezing weather in the spring so that we have a pretty long period for them to set new fruit. Yours was a little bit late, so that, that kind of the end of the cool weather, it gave you that nice tomato. Now it's just going to grow until the nights start cooling down again, hopefully by September, and you'll get a new batch of tomatoes this fall. But it's just the high nighttime temperatures that are keeping it from setting fruit right now. Now, if you love tomatoes, plant some cherry tomatoes. Sweet 100 is a good red. Sun Gold is a good gold one. Juliet is kind of a teardrop-shaped one. Uh, the the uh, cherry types don't pay any attention to nighttime temperature, so they just produce pretty much regardless of what the weather does. But it's perfectly normal for a big fruited tomato to stop producing in the summer until it starts cooling down again. Okay, thank you so much. That answered both my questions. I really appreciate it. Well, it's what I'm here for, and I appreciate the call. You get out and have a great Sunday. Okay, you too. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah. All right, Craig, hang on. Uh, We need to get our last commercial break of the Garden Show done, and you'll be up next. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. We're going to talk to Craig. Probably have time for one more caller beyond that. If you've been getting a busy signal, dial now, 210-599-5555. Well, I say good morning, Craig. Good morning, Bob. I have Good a morning. couple of plants that I'm having some problems with. Okay. The first one is some Japanese boxwoods. Uh, I keep losing just half of it, a third of it just dies off, and we cut it off. And some of them are old ones, and some of them are ones that were replaced. And I looked on the Internet, and the best I could find is some kind of a fungus on these boxwoods. It would be unusual to have a fungus, and the thing about fungi is it's not likely to affect just one limb at a time. It's it's either going to be an all-or-nothing thing. The whole plant's going to fold up and die, or, you know, it's all going to stay green. I suspect that um, that it's a water issue. Uh, again, boxwoods, once they're established, boxwood are probably the most drought-tolerant plant out there, but it takes several years to get established, and um, uh, those first few years, you let them get too dry, you'll have whole plants die, you'll have limbs die out in them. And so I would tell you to try not necessarily to water more often, but the boxwoods are deep-rooted. So when you water, try to just saturate them more thoroughly. Do you water, have a sprinkler system, have a drip system? How do you water them normally? Yeah, we have a drip system, and then when it's really hot, we'll come by with the hose and give them some extra water. And how long do you let that drip system run when you water? Oh, probably 20 or 30. Oh, the, oh three hours. Try to do it overnight. I mean, let <laughs> okay. it, it, if it's a good drip system, they don't put out, you know, I like the little pressure compensated drip, which puts out nine-tenths of a gallon per hour. So, you know, you're just not going to use very much water, and you're not going to be running up your bill. But believe it or not, three hours, just the kind of weather we're having, that's not getting enough water into the ground to support those boxwood. Yeah, I've got one-gallon emitters on mine. I guess I could go to two-gallon emitters. Well, you can do that, or you can just let them run longer. Um, Yeah. I, <laughs> we're not going to get into drought stages and, and things like that, but um, the uh, what I would do since things have you know obviously lost some roots is make up at least a couple of watering cans full and put a little bit of Super Thrive, maybe put a little bit of Garrett juice in. Uh, the Super Thrive, I've seen that 
bring plants back that I thought were dead. And uh, it is great in restarting roots where a plant has gotten a little too dry and lost some of its root system. So uh, I just for, you know, once or twice now and again maybe in two weeks, just take a watering can and fill it. You put about a cap full of the Super Thrive in it. It takes very little to do it. But use that to uh, water those boxwood, and I think that will make a big difference in how quickly they turn around. Okay, I'll try it. Second one is, is I've got a little gem that's probably oh seven feet tall. It blooms, but it's got very little le- very little leaves on it. And what area of town do you live in? I'm in New Braunfels. I'm, actually, I'm between Canyon Lake and New Braunfels on 306. Okay, so you have relatively deep soil. You know, I, it's in a it's in a raised bed that's uh, probably uh, two and a half to three feet deep. Okay. Filled with topsoil, and okay. then we put it in the ground back in, I want to say, 18. Okay. Put about three inches of mulch around that tree. Uh, Magnolia's little gem is one of the best ones out there because it's a little slower growing, and it doesn't produce quite as deep a root system. But magnolias like to have their roots in the shade. If you go to a part of the country where you see big, beautiful magnolias, you'll frequently see that the limbs are almost all the way to the ground. If you see any pretty magnolias in San Antonio or New Braunfels or anywhere around, uh, I can almost guarantee you the foliage will start almost at ground level because they absolutely hate having that hot sun hitting the soil and just baking the roots because they tend to produce most of the roots are relatively shallow. Put two to three inches of mulch, not right against the trunk, but over the root zone of that plant, and the you'll see a remarkable difference in how much foliage it puts on. Okay, I'll add some more mulch. Maybe it's washed off, but I'll try that. And, and, oh, it uh, does. It and it decomposes, which is a good thing. And uh, mm-hmm. don't you know? Don't cut the lower limbs off. Uh, people want to. No. The a standard magnolias, of course, little Jim. It'll eventually get twenty feet tall, but it's never going to be a tree that you can put a picnic table underneath. So let it exactly. let it have its low limbs and its natural shade on the soil. But um, uh, you're in deep enough soil; it should do well for you. As I'm sure you know, uh, if you ever come into San Antonio and dine at Papados or some of those places. And in fact, I may have seen some of them around. Uh, oh, well, there's a restaurant. I don't know why the name doesn't come into mind, but uh, you've got some great restaurants up there. And it seems like I've uh, like I've seen some of them around your area, but they do fine. But if you can if you can keep the roots cooler that'll make a big difference on that tree and a little super thrive to boot little super thrive never hurts anything it's kind of like a good vitamin it's not really a fertilizer but um i don't think we have anybody else waiting i will tell you real quickly my my first experience with super thrive years ago i worked uh, with a man named alton Grimm. we got in a shipment of cuttings that i thought that they were dead they've been delayed in shipment and there were these little brown shriveled up twigs and I said, what are we going to do with the mouth? And it looks like they're dead. And he said, oh, no, we'll pot them up and uh, water them in with Super Thrive. That was 300 cuttings. I did what he told me, and 297 of them leafed out and grew. So I've been a believer oh, wow. in it ever since. So it, it, it's amazing stuff. It's uh, uh, The story behind it, uh, supposedly back in World War II, when the United States was worried about uh, Japanese invading the West Coast, they paid... Uh, uh, this old fellow named Dr. Thompson, uh, to come up with some solution that would make plants grow faster that they were planting around the gun emplacements they were putting out on the West Coast. And Super Thrive is what he came up with. And so it's 
that is my understanding of that's where it originally came from. But uh, it looks like snake oil. It's the funniest packaging I've ever seen, but it, it really does make an amazing difference when you've got a plant with root damage. All right, I'll give it a shot. And now you have, as Paul, uh, Paul, what's his name, Harvey would say, now you know the rest of the story. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Bob, thank you much. Get out and enjoy the rest of Sunday, Craig. Thank you for the call this morning. Okay, goodbye. Ah, Dr. Kirby's here now, so I'm going to tell Jimmy to open the lines up for questions about your pet's health. And I'm going to repeat because I think it certainly bears repeating the last couple of minutes of the show here uh, Hill Country, we are in extreme fire danger. There is no doubt about it. Two things I highly recommend you do. Number one, be sure you keep your gutters clean. There are an awful lot of, when if you get a major fire going, a lot of homes burn because of the what we call the uh, fire brands. It can float through the air, land in a gutter through of leaves. That sets the roots on fire, and the house is gone. Clean gutters will, especially if you have a metal roof, but with any roof, having your gutters clean will give you a better chance of surviving a, a fire, which hopefully we don't have, but, uh, you know, it's just very dangerous out there. Second thing is learn in a fire academy course that flames will tend to be about three times as high as whatever is burning. If your grass is mowed down to two inches tall and it catches on fire, flames are probably going to be maybe six inches high, which in most cases are pretty controllable height. If you've let the grass get really tall and it's brown and dry, though, if it's if it's two feet tall, three feet tall, those flames could be five or six feet high. So you just figure it out which uh, which is going to be the easier to control. And highly recommend that, especially around your home and any outbuildings, barns, garages, whatever else, keep that grass mowed way down low. If you can create any bare soil between the grass and the buildings, uh, you're that much better. Hopefully, you won't ever need to know that, but uh, uh, this drought is you know, getting scary to the point of how dry things are and uh, how little what moisture we have out there. Be very thankful for the quality of the volunteer fire departments we have. The guys and gals there are the ones that are keeping us safe. And thus far, fires that have started to manage to contain them before they turn into a fire like Bastrop or Possum Kingdom or what's happened in Maui the past uh, very short while ago. So stay safe. Stick around. Your Pets Health with Dr. Dan Kirby is up next. We'll go back to gardening next Saturday morning, 5.30 till 9, next Sunday, 8 till 11, and we'll look forward to having you there. You're listening to KTSA Radio, 